Immigration Light. Uh, this is Attorney James Betzold, and I am joined today by Attorney Joshua Mikrit, uh, immigration attorney in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, so say good morning, Josh. Good morning, everyone who's listening, and good morning, James. Thank you for having me again. All right. Our topic for today is really one of my favorite, and we've been we've been sort of waiting weeks and weeks to do this because um, I, I wanted to do this one specifically with Josh, who's a super busy and a super a super immigration attorney as well. So, um, and, and I, I guess to introduce the topic, I'll just, where did the inspiration for this come from? I was at church, right? And I was, you know, doing my business in the boys' room, going to the bathroom, washing my hands, getting ready to leave. And uh, uh, one of the fellow parishioners, you know, came up to me and he knows that I'm an immigration attorney. And his question to me was, uh, how do you square, you know, being an immigration attorney and helping people with immigration when they've clearly broken the law? How do you, how do you handle the situation where like, you know, somebody broke the law and now you're going to help them. And I mean, it sort of caught me a little off guard. I mean, it's really one of the typical questions people get, how can you possibly defend someone who's guilty in the criminal court? Context? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the answer I've always had and that, that we've learned and that I hold strongly, the belief holds strongly, is that everybody deserves a trial. Everybody deserves legal representation in a criminal context and I think in an immigration context as well when it's an adversarial procedure. Um, and so it's part of the system. I mean, if the person is guilty, they're going to, you know, they're going to get what's coming to them. And the idea of the attorney is to make sure that, that they get their day in court and that it's fair and that the procedures are followed and no one's rights are being trampled on. Right. Um, and everyone's entitled to a defense. Amen. So with with that in mind, how, I mean, shotgun blast, there's the question in your face. I mean, what are just some of your initial thoughts on that, Josh? Um, <clears throat> very similar to yours, I think. Um, and I mean, it's I, I think, you know, with all due respect to the questioner and for that matter, with all due respect to all of my family members who <laughs> asked me the same question. Well, yeah. And in fairness, I, I mean. You, you couldn't meet a nicer guy, really. And his, his question was sincere. It didn't come yeah. from a place of derision or from right. you know, any negativity. Just really wanted to understand. So a fair question. I mean, so there's, there's kind of two levels of answers there. I mean, on the one level, you say, well, we live in an adversarial system, like where um, it, it's, our system is different from Europe's system. Our, well, <clears throat> I should say from continental Europe's system. Our system is derived from the English common law tradition, which also – is an adversarial system where you have two sides fighting it out in front of an independent uh, fact finder or, you know, decider. And that person makes a decision about what's true. Now that can't work. Um, I mean, in the system that we have, if someone is not representing both sides with equal vigor and and intelligence and, and education. So if you have, the government, which always has more resources on the one side and in the criminal or or in the immigration context, making arguments on the one side. And then you've got um, just an individual, you know, John Q citizen or John Q immigrant or Juan Q immigrant, maybe we could say for the purposes of today. Uh, Then it's just a massive imbalance. So uh, there's just, it's, it's impossible. The system wouldn't work without um, representing people who are allegedly, 
um, guilty or have been charged with some kind of an infraction of some kind. Um, so we, it's, it, and you know, there's sort of two, and then the other level of the answer to the question about this is, what, okay, so what does that mean the attorney's obligation is? I mean, does that give us the right to go in front of um, a panel like a judge or a, a, you know, an administrative court or a court of appeals or, or even like a, some kind of executive agency like, you know, the Social Security Administration or wh whatever, wherever lawyers practice, and then lie in front of the tribunal on behalf of someone who the lawyer knows has committed a crime. Now, um, everyone ha has seen the OJ verdict and knows what happened there. And, it, you know, you, you look at what those lawyers did and it's easy to go, well, those guys were just lying up there. They were just making stuff up. And that's, I mean, I, I, it's easy to look at it that way. But at the same time, what really was happening was that they were manifesting one of the two ways that you can approach these kinds of cases as a, as a defense attorney. Number one, you can approach it and say, it's my job to get my guy off no matter what happens. And number two, it's my job just to make sure that the guy gets all his rights, everything that's coming to him, that, that the government doesn't use its power or whatever the other party doesn't use its power to run them over, to railroad them into a result that just isn't just, uh, where the um, they skip over uh, making sure that the person's rights are secured i mean that I, I would i would guess that's your attitude towards it that's my attitude towards it oh i absolutely agree i mean you've got a couple ways that you can do it i mean obviously as attorneys you know if we go in front of a judge and lie um we're gonna lose our license because there's gonna be a pissed off prosecutor and then there's gonna be a pissed off judge and then there's gonna be a pissed off bar ethics committee and right. then there's gonna be us in you know federal court and possibly all sorts of problems so i mean yeah, absolutely. One thing, you know, the rule, the rule that I live by and that I know I know you live by is I'm not going to lie. Right. I'm not going to do it. It's not worth it. Um, there's things that I control and there's things I can't control. And if you did something that broke the law um, and the other side knows about it and they've got evidence and they've got you dead to rights, well, let's let's figure out a strategy to win. But if you try and lie, I'm going to withdraw from the case. And right. You know, take any remedial measures that I'm ethically obligated to take. Right. So I think, I mean, I think some people can generally understand that. The, the the part of the question that he had that really got me though was like, how do you morally or ethically square it? Aside from just the fact of representation. Yeah. But, well, that begs the so, question so a little bit, think, doesn't it? Like, it begs the question of like, when when is when you disagree with the law or when the law itself, like again, and that gets into I, I don't know if I started to say this earlier when you and I were talking before we started the podcast, but like there's this difference between what's ethical maybe and or or what you can feel passionate about and what's legal. Like the law itself tries to establish what any given society at any given point in time believes is moral to a certain extent. Like I used to get this question a lot in undergrad when we were in philosophy classes, you know, like talking about subject like abortion or something like that like in, and you know you have the sort of more uh progressive minded uh, professors saying well why why would you ever try to make a legal issue out of a moral issue and every every legal issue is a moral issue is my response you know i mean i'm not going to get into obviously that subject but like a, a moral issue i mean if not killing someone is a moral issue and we all agree that that should be illegal but we don't always agree on what it is and that's where immigration really uh is such a salient uh, topic these days because Certain of us believe that having a robust, generous immigration system is um, is moral, and being restrictive yes. and being punitive towards people who come here for the large, by and, I, and large, just to make their lives better because of how difficult it is where they come where they come from, 
We see that. And I think a lot of people, yeah. I think a lot of people will agree that, or some people think today that that's what we have. We have this robust, very welcoming immigration system. Anyone can come. And then, right. and then there's the reality. Right. right? Completely so let's true. talk a little bit. I mean, we sort of touched on this beforehand, uh, before we started recording. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the history of the immigration laws in the United States. And then I think that will help give us a little bit of a, you know, a reference point, because that's one of the premises underlying this gentleman's question. One of the premises that he, you know, talking about philosophy class, right? There's always the underlying premises of the, the argument. And one of his assumptions or premises was, hey, the laws we have are great and moral and excellent, and that's and, and they should be enforced 100%, and, and that's the way it should be. Right. So, I mean, if we look to the, I mean, you had mentioned earlier uh, sort of the, what, what we look at wistfully as the heyday of immigration, Ellis Island, uh, people right. coming into New York, um, you know, just a lot of immigrants in the 1800s, maybe 1860s coming in, free land for them if they could right. do it under the Homesteading Act. Um, but what are some of the what are some of the darker marks on immigration uh, immigration laws of the United States? I mean, if we look right at the founding of the country, there was a point where, you know, when we had established a new constitution, and essentially there was a law saying, okay, anyone physically in the country as of this date, American citizen, right? And then anyone who who wasn't, uh, we got to come up with some sort of process, and that's been re- like the main point of debate from the beginning of the of the republic was yeah what are the steps you got to go through to be considered an american a full-on american citizen yeah right and i mean i think a lot of people aren't aware i i don't know i I have this great quote i want to i want to throw out from uh again from a professor that i had i don't think it's true let me just preface it with that (laughs) i don't think here's a quote it's false but has great rhetorical value but this guy was you know at a secular university and had a doctorate in political history and political science and he told us as a class that few people recognized that at the time of the american revolution something like two-thirds of the america of the population of the 13 colonies spoke german and i don't i don't think that was true but i i'm sure (laughs) i'm sure there was a large percentage though that did you know, which which led yeah. him to say it in the first place, which is why I think it's a useful quote. Um, there was a large uh, German immigrant population here at the time, and um, and there were feelings about that. And there were, and even at the time of the Alien and Sedition Acts, when John Adams was president, he was the second president of the United States. Obviously, um, he passed the Alien and Sedition Acts because we were in this state of quasi war with the French, and there were a lot of French immigrants from Quebec and from Canada and from the Caribbean that were living in the United States. Like there was a huge population of French immigrants that were in, that were living in and around Philadelphia at the time. And uh, that's where the the nation's capital was um, until the very end of Adams's uh, term. But you, when we, we look back at the alien and sedition acts, which literally made it a crime to criticize the government, which, you know, is like such a no brainer today, (laughs) but like there was this thought that there was going to be all this insurrection and that there were all these foreign agents living everywhere. And so we had to root them out. And so anyone that even appeared as a sympathizer to the French um, or that criticized the current government for its handling of, this was only one, this was one aspect of what led to the adoption of the Alien and Sedition Acts, which by the way, passed um, the Congress like overwhelmingly, like this was, this did not start with the administration. It started in Congress, which is always a sign that something had broad base of, a broad base of support. And that's and now and Thomas Jefferson came into office and he actually pardoned everyone that was convicted under the Aliens and Sedition Acts, 
but they were called the Alien and Sedition Acts. And this is the second president of the United <laughs> States, you know? So I, it's, it's, it's a fascinating history. Wow. So, I mean, fast forward to May 6th, 1882, we have what's called uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act. So think about, you know, the time period. I mean, and this might sort of still be in that wistful period where there's Ellis Island and you got a lot of immigrants coming in from Europe and from all over the place. Well, this law provided an absolute 10-year ban or moratorium on Chinese labor immigration. And so this was the fascinating. You know, this was the first time that federal law prescribed entry of an ethnic working group on the premise that it endangered the good order of certain localities. So it was highly racially motivated. I mean, because they they, specific, they <laughs> yeah. don't say Singaporean or Vietnamese; they say Chinese, because they were the ones coming in. And I mean, if you think about the 1880s, what was America doing? We were industrializing. We were building railroads. Right. And I don't know, Josh. Have you ever ever watched any uh, like Western movies? You know, depicting this time period. Absolutely, yeah, tons. Uh, maybe you've seen Blazing Saddles, a Mel Brooks comedy <laughs> show. Is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> classic. Oh yeah. man! So building railroads, and you had a lot of Chinese uh, uh, Chinese immigrants who would come here to work, generally uh, as slave labor most of the time, or at yeah. least for slave wages, but. There's a great Apparently line that was better in back, than living this, in China. This is, this is such a stupid example, but like, this is not a Western at all, and I can't believe I'm about to go here. But like, this, in Back to the Future Three, if anyone remembers that movie, it was actually a pretty good sequel, yes. and it takes place largely in, in the West, like before California. Yep. California was a state, but it wasn't totally populated yet. And there's this little town, and um, and uh, Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, the character was Marty McFly, right? He walks into this old town old saloon and he's got like this shirt that he's from the future so he's come back in time to 1885 and he's wearing this costume that he found at a theater shop or something that passed for like a like a cowboy outfit and, and the shirt is like pink and blue and red it's so super obnoxious and he walks into this saloon and the three guys that are sitting at the table um, one of them says must have gotten that shirt off in a dead Chinese you know like, oh no I mean, and, you know, it's totally like, you know, a racial slur that was used, I suppose, um, in the movie to, like, point out, like, how low people thought of the Chinese in the West, too. I mean, oh, yeah. it's fascinating to think that there was such a large amount of Chinese immigration coming from the Pacific Ocean to California right. and the, the American West that they needed to pass this law at all or that they, they felt like it was necessary. And, it, and as just looking, like, at the text that you cited – I mean, when you cite a specific immigrant group and you, you know, for the maintaining of social order or whatever the language was that you quoted, it's like, I mean, it's easy mm -hmm. looking at it with our modern eyes to go, oh, this was racially motivated, um, you know, but yeah, uh, it's, but it's fascinating. I mean, that it, it's true. Highly discriminatory. That would be like if today, uh, you know, if Donald Trump were to sign the Mexican Exclusion Act, which for 10 years right. would say no more immigration from Mexico. We've got too many Mexicans here. It's affecting the good order and and uh, and feelings <laughs> in society of America. That's actually not a bad That's pretty good. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so I mean, it. I mean, yeah. Looking back, I mean, and it, this happens routinely. I think even in law school or as you're studying history of the United States, if you read like the congressional record that some of these friggin' racists were spewing, the hate that they were spewing, and the racial intolerance that they were spewing, the sexism that they were spewing, like. 
in Congress, and they weren't afraid to say it. You know, I mean, today, you know, some people are afraid to like open the door for a woman because they're afraid they'll be misinterpreted as, a, as, as you know, right, yeah, that she's lesser or whatever. When you know, some of us would think it's very a gentlemanly thing to do. Uh, no, these guys were flat out. You know, the things that they would say about blacks or African Americans. Oh, they're obviously racially insuperior, and they would say the same things about. The Chinese and various immigrants. Yeah. And you mentioned yeah. the Chinese uh, immigration issue. I mean, long before that, I mean, in the in the earlier part of the 1800s, sort of pre-Civil War, there were there was massive immigration um, from Ireland. I, I think if you I, I think I read somewhere that the largest uh, immigrant heritages that uh, exist in the United States are Irish, English and German. Um, and uh there was there was obviously a lot of problems in Ireland in, in the early part of the 1800s where they you know there was there was famine and uh, whatnot or at least the, the vestiges of famine and so a lot of people came here to escape and um, and they were all Catholic obviously um, and uh, in Boston in the I mean Boston now is known as sort of this you know like little Ireland I mean, it's, it, I mean or maybe not so much now but even like 30 <laughs> or 40 years ago it was thought of as like you know the huge heritage of Irish um, immigration. And, uh, you, you know, you saw some of this represented, like if you've ever seen the movie Far and Away or Gangs of New York, um, not so much yeah. about Boston, obviously, Gangs of New York, but even still address the problem of Irish immigration, if you call it a, not problem, but you know what I'm saying. But anyway, um, yeah. you had signs up that said Irish Catholics need not apply. Um, and they yeah. came over in such numbers that it just completely changed the nature of um the electorate in the United States. And, and you, I think you see some of that uh, reflected again in popular culture and in, in gangs of New York, like looking at trying to unite all the Irish Catholics into voting one way. Um, and then you oh, have yeah. sort of and one of the, even one of the, one of the big fears inside of the United States, even among the founders, um, you know, they specifically were, would say, and there's plenty of citations for it. We don't really want a lot of Catholics here because we don't want the Pope to have any political control in the United States of America. Right. It's a big fear. Yeah, absolutely. And so when all of a sudden you got a flood of Catholics coming into the country, um, you know, a lot of those fears were restoked. And I'm sure you had a lot of people out there saying, look, the founders of our country tried to, we, I mean, in Rhode Island, Catholics were banned. You could not come in if you were Catholic. You could not live there. So, yeah, you couldn't I be mean, members. Yeah, there's some real fears. All over the country, like you couldn't be members of certain clubs, and you couldn't run for office in, in lots of cases. Um, and which is why, yeah. even as late as 1960, which I would imagine your parents were alive by then, um, yep. when John Kennedy ran for president, um, he had to go uh, to, uh, I think it was in Texas, he gave a speech in front of a bunch of Protestant uh, ministers, like just, you know, in the heart of the South, obviously, in Texas. And he gave this famous speech about how you know, my faith is personal and private and, and like it, it won't orient. I don't, I don't orient my decision-making based on my personal faith. Like that's me. I make my own personal decisions based on my faith. Um, but uh, as a politician, I have to look, look after the interests of the whole country. And it's this very famous, very well-written speech, but he had, to, I mean, this is while he was running for president as the, he wasn't the first guy to run for president as a Catholic, but obviously he was the first one that actually won. Um, and, uh, and even still, there was all this talk like that, that there was going to be a red phone to the Vatican and, and that the Pope was going to be giving the orders. And, uh, obviously there was so much of a fear of that, that he had to, um, he had to go out of his way to make a speech like that. And then also in the, like early on, he ran for president with a kind of a new strategy. This was when primaries weren't really a thing. And he actually used the primaries that existed, which they, they weren't all primaries. Most of them, I think were like convention type things where 
a state would decide where it was going to give its votes. Um, but uh, he went to West Virginia where there's like 90% Protestants and he went like door to door to door and he did his best to, um, to, to campaign like door to door in a way that we would kind of recognize nowadays specifically to show that a Catholic could win in West Virginia. Because if he would have lost in West Virginia in, in this heavily Protestant state, then it would have sent a message to Democratic voters around the country that, no, this, this just isn't going to happen. Um, but, uh, sure. yeah, this, this is 1960. Actually that, this is that, 1960. Yeah, if we're, so we're going forward in time, right? So we started at the founding of the country where if you're in the country at a certain time, you can be here. Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And actually, so even though it was, it was intended to last for 10 years, the Chinese Exclusion Act, it was renewed in 1892, and it was made permanent in 1902. Really? So that whole period of Western expansion and industrialization is filled with the Chinese Exclusion Act. And, yeah, I mean, it, it was repealed only in 1943, so after World wow. War II started. In World War II, I, I mean, on that subject, of course, we had the Japanese internment happen during World War II after the Japanese bombed yeah. Pearl Harbor. Japanese immigrants terrible, all yeah. over the West were rounded up and put into these, these camps. And, uh, even though they were, even though some of them were born here yeah. and, and were U.S. citizens. Even, you know? even U.S. citizen ones. Uh, yeah, Japanese. If you had, if you had uh, Japanese citizen. heritage, you were rounded up. Yeah. And so then if we look at the next you know, major uh, compendium of law that was passed to govern, infer, uh, govern immigration, it was 1952. So uh, it was uh, nine years after the Chinese Exclusion Act is repealed we get the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952. All right, so now we're sort of into, you know, the modern era, and this was the first time that immigration was governed by one set of unified statutes with one body of text, right? Right. And so 1952, we've get... That's the law we still still use today. I mean, that's the governing law. It's been amended amended here and there, but... A bunch of times, but yeah. But what it does is it, yeah, it created different quotas and... Uh, yeah, quota system for different nationalities, different regions, even that today. If you look at the visa bulletin that's published each month, it was just released October of so 2017, a couple of days ago. Um, if you're from if you're from this part of the world and, or this country, and you're of this group of family members, so this category, then there's only so many visas in that category per year. So there's a line, right. and it's this long, and this is how long you have to wait. Um, We still use all those laws. I mean, those things are all basically still functioning the same way they were engineered back in the 50s. We do. And, I mean, it's been tweaked a little bit here and there. Um, I mean, I think other than that, probably some of the biggest, and at least in the modern era, revisions of that was with something called IRA, IRA, IRA. Yeah, we call it IRA, IRA, yeah. President President Bill Clinton, which you could call – the Mexican Exclusion Act, because it created, <laughs> a, again, a 10-year bar. Okay, sound familiar from the Chinese Exclusion Act? Yeah, it created right. a 10-year bar to anyone who's entered the United States, has been here unlawfully for more than a year, and leaves, and then wants to come back. You can't. Ten, you got to wait 10 years or get a waiver. It also created what we call the permanent bar, which is the really Mexican Exclusion Act, because... It's for people who've entered and left but have been here in the U.S. for a total of a year or more, so in the aggregate. And then they leave and come back or try to come back. Then you're, then, then you're banned for 10 years, and there's no waiver of it. Right. 
except from very narrow circumstances having to do with being victims of crime or domestic abuse or things like that. But those are very, very narrow exceptions. So, right. And on top um, of that, um, you've got the, the IRA law in 1996. I think it, may, it was either passed in 96 or 97. Um, it, it, yeah, all, it took effect in 97. It used to be that in, there was a form of relief. I, I can't remember what its technical name was. We call it 212C, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where it, uh, it, it, was, it, it was superseded by an, um, the form of relief that we use nowadays. So if someone's in the process of being deported from the United States, there used to be this back door you could use where if you could prove that you had a certain amount of time in the United States and you have a uh, legal wife, parent, or, or spouse, parent, or child, uh, that would suffer what's called an extreme hardship if you were to be deported. Uh, it used to be that there was this back door that you could use, again, assuming you didn't have um, a disqualifying criminal conviction on your record, you could use this back door to mm-hmm. stay in the United States and get a green card. And, you know, it wasn't an e- always an easy get, but it was, a, uh, it was something that was uh, allowing enough immigrants from Latin America, principally uh, Mexico and Guatemala and Central America, to get status in the United States that Congress in Ira said, no, 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 this is, this is letting too many people in. We have to raise the standard for how, who can get in. And they changed the, the language of this particular form of relief. And they said, you don't have to prove just that there'd be an extreme hardship. Now you have to prove that there would be an extreme and exceptionally unusual hardship, which to me, like yeah. just that hearing that language, it's like, it's almost kind of ridiculous. You know, I, I studied, English uh, language and literature and phonetics and stuff and word history and when I was an undergrad and political science. And I mean, you listen to that phrase and if I were to write something into a brief like that, like, or into a legal pleading and a judge were to read it, um, you know, where you use that many adjectives in a row. You know, <laughs> you'd be like, would what? say it's superfluous. Yeah, it's superfluous, it's superfluous right? It's over the top. Like you're just it's redundant. It's bad yeah. argument or it's bad. It's bad writing just to rely so heavily on adjectives, I guess, is the point. And you read that language. But essentially it's almost what like you're a joke. It's like there is extreme yeah. and exceptionally unusual hardship. It's like, in other words, unless somebody has cancer, you're not staying. I mean, that's. It's interpreted differently in different parts of the country. We know in Detroit, it's interpreted incredibly mm-hmm. strictly. Um, I think oh, wow. compared yeah. to the rest of the country, but like that's another thing that made it so that even if you you have um, family members who are legal who would be in a desperate situation, and you have a long time in the United States, and you don't have a, a bad criminal record or any criminal record, you still can't stay because you have to prove extreme and exceptionally unusual hardship before you can do that. And I mean that basically means right. one in fifty you know, applicants, um, not, maybe not that many, uh, but it's hard to get. And, uh, that was another thing. I mean, again, for people who are here from other nations, you know, you know, this as an immigration attorney that has dealt with removal proceedings and deportation proceedings, uh, most of the people who apply for this or have applied for it historically, uh, before IRA IRA were from Mexico, Central America. So this has the effect of, and there's, yeah. And there's a reason for that. I mean, for years and years, there was sort of a wink and a nod, and I mean, you could show up at the border and just say, "Hey, I'm here. I'm just going to work for farmer so and so. It's going to be fine," and they would let you in, and you could come in, and you would work, and you'd go back and forth, and it would be easy to get in and across the border, um, and and then that changed, right? And so, but you, but but we had established as a country sort of this unspoken rule of, all right, for the farmers, we're going to let them use you know uh, unregulated labor, and even the labor laws are written to with all sorts of exceptions for agricultural uh, practices or agricultural workers. Right. So you had a system where, where the farmers were relying on the flow of illegal labor or undocumented labor. And 
where they also, I mean, it became part of life for them, where, all right, you got to this certain age, it's your turn to go to the United States and to work hard each summer and, you know, harvest and plant the crops and, and oh, then that's you come been, home and you yeah. bring that money home to your That's family. been going yeah. on in some form for probably 100 years at least. I mean, where you have temporary... So to throw in, so to yeah. throw in something in IRA, IRA that says, all right, anyone who after this state's been here for more than a year in total and then wants to come back is barred for 10 years, I mean, it just threw a wrench into the system. Yeah. That's what it did. And there's no doubt that that, that was designed specifically with Mexican and probably Central South Americans in mind because there was that habit of them coming in and leaving and coming in and leaving. And so it's going to affect them disproportionately to, say, a European who has to cross the Atlantic on a boat or uh, an Asian who has to cross the Pacific on a boat in order to get to the United States. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. I think I think we can look at Ira Ira as the Chinese Exclusion Act of of the modern era. <laughs> yeah, they didn't call it. So, that. They didn't call it the Mexican Exclusion Act for obvious reasons, but it definitely <laughs> did have the effect of that. And you know, I mean, we've been did. talking you know about. Um, no, sorry. Go ahead, James. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I mean, you know, Bill Clinton was president. He was a very popular president, um, and he was very popular because many times his policy decisions were dictated. Well, maybe maybe that's not fair, but he he tended to take a lot of decisions that were popular at the time. Yeah, he was a centrist. I think think we don't remember what that looks like now. uh, But he he would pass laws, uh, you know, that were that were generated by a Republican Congress. They actually got a lot done uh, between the Republican Congress and Democratic president. Oh, they did. Yeah, they had welfare reform. They had balancing the budget. They had and there's there's a lot of uh, you know audio montages out there or video montages that you can find where. You can see Bill Clinton doing a press briefing, and he'll say, you know, at one point in time, oh, you know, I think we can balance the budget in 10 years. And then, you know, a couple weeks later, I think we can balance the budget in eight years. Well, I think we can balance the budget in, in, you know, in five years. And it's just sort of this, they were able to work together, negotiate, and and get a lot of things done. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And at the time, at the time, it was popular, uh, at least according to their polling, to to come down hard and look like you're like you're taking a tough stance on on law enforcement and on immigration and on these other things. And so, I mean, he signed it without a care in the world. And I mean, if you read uh, sort of some of the things that he said, like at the signing ceremony, um, it's, it's completely different than I think what you would hear him or his wife say, uh, or anyone in the democratic party say today. I agree. Yeah. It's, I mean, I mean, this is the same president where we got the defense of marriage act that he signed into law at the time. It was very popular to say, Oh no, 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 no. The gays are going to ruin our marriage. They're going to ruin our culture. They're going to ruin America. So we need to pass a law to defend marriage so that the gays out there can't can't destroy it. Right? Yeah. And so he signed into law the Defense of Marriage Act, which now has been found unconstitutional. Yeah, and uh, I mean, even as recently as, I mean, on that subject, even as recently as Obama, I think Obama ran in 2008 saying he was not for uh, legalization of same-sex marriage. And he did that as well. Yeah. And then, you know, he changed his mind. I, he, he, he spoke about it quite a bit when he ran against Mitt Romney. But uh, mm-hmm. regard, you know, we've been talking about sort of the, I, I, there's this idea that America has been generous in terms of immigration out there. And we're sort of giving exa- all these examples of times where the United States has actually passed very restrictive legislation about, uh, uh, you know, that has restricted either certain immigrant groups or has responded to certain trends in immigration uh, in a certain way. Uh, we, in the popular culture though, despite those examples, and I think this is really um, where you were intending to go uh, with this. Um, so I don't wanna, I don't wanna, you know, preempt 
that. But like the question of sort of, for me anyway, it's looking at the history of immigration in the United States. It's easy for me to be romantic about it. Um, Even, even in spite of these examples, I think it's one of the things, one of the areas of, of um, American history where it's really inspiring to me, uh, the Statue of Liberty and, and the, um, the poem that's at the foot of it, you know, the give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Um, it, people really did come here looking for that, and they still do. Um, that is a beautiful thing. Um, and the, it, is a, it is, I don't want to minimize the political debate at all. Despite what we've said and despite maybe how we've come, up, come across, I would imagine you agree with this. Like, it is a, a legitimate question. Like, unlimited immigration is not feasible in any country, anywhere, at any time. Um, there are a variety of reasons why immigration has to be monitored and controlled by uh, the the sovereign, who in our case is the U.S. Congress, supposedly the U.S. Congress. But uh, it it just even in spite of that, like when we when we talk about again the difference between what's legal and what's moral, we those things are not always synonymous. Hopefully they are sometimes, and and I think that they probably are sometimes. Hopefully most of the time. But it when it, when it comes to immigration. What's the guiding principle? I mean, what are our values? What do our values dictate um, in terms of where we set the level? Because everyone agrees. I don't. I've never found anyone that has ever said, "Shut the gates. No one's coming in. Zero immigration is okay." I've never met a person who says that. A lot of people come off like that's what they think, but when they're pressed, they don't say, "Oh no, no. I think people should be able to immigrate. They should just have to do it legally." Is usually the response you get, and that's fine. I don't disagree with that. Um, I we have to control the border. We have to be able to. Uh, know who's coming into the country, and especially in the age of terrorism, we have to be able to monitor who overstays visas and all these things. That, that's incredibly important. It's an, an incredibly important function uh, of um, being the sovereign that, that our, our government has at various times not done very well. But that being said, um, I have this, uh, I think you saw it last time you were here, James. I have this uh, lithograph, this photo, this old photo from the uh, it was taken from like on board the deck of a ship that was full of immigrants. And you can see like, uh, there's like a bunch of uh, immigrants that are on the ship, uh, on the deck of the ship. And they're looking out over the water and they can see the Statue of Liberty sort of coming through the mist. And they've all got their hats in the air and they're all, there are women that are holding their handkerchiefs up and you can see that they're kind of dancing. And uh, this photo is in, in my lobby because you, that was, there was a, amongst immigrants who come here, that's how they feel they throw a party. I mean, they, they dance and celebrate that they make it here. They see the Statue of Liberty, and it means something um, because it is so difficult in other parts of the world. And, uh, you know, my great-grandmother came over. She was four foot eight, I think, from Poland and, and during this heyday. And uh, so it's easy for me to be to sort of think of this as what gave birth to my family's history here in the United States and to be romantic about it. Um, it's one of the, the easier things to think about American. You know, when you think, okay, how do we know America's doing good in the world? How, how do we know that America is good in the world? And the fact that so many immigrants still want to come here and celebrate when they make it here and they're so desperate to stay is, I think, personally, one of the greatest things, one of the greatest evidences that we do still have. something. There's something special about this country that we shouldn't take for granted. Absolutely. Sorry, I kind of got off on a tangent there. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, and let's let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Okay, so I'm still recording, but I'll I'll edit this part out. Do you still have a few minutes? I mean, we didn't get to talk much about the about yeah. the the biblical background. Do you you have like another twenty minutes or so? Yeah, I'm good. Um, and uh, honestly, that that segue that was kind of where I was hoping to go. 
uh, with with that, like talking about the morality of, of immigration. Um, so we can we can. Yeah. I, do you want to move it over that that way? I'll let you do the segue. Um, and uh, yep, I'll bring it back in and I'll I'll ask a few questions and we'll. I think what I'd like to do is just you know, I've I've got the verse from uh, from Genesis that talks about you know God giving dominion over everything on the earth to man, right? And I think that's important because there's that connection between heaven and well we'll get into that as we go why don't we just let's roll right yeah give me give me i'm gonna go refill my coffee i'll be right back give me 10 seconds all right sure this episode is being brought to you by prima fasci prima fasci is the attorney's solution for auto filling of immigration forms and immigration case management prima fasci is a standalone application that is built to sync with clio so you can have all of the advantages of the world's leading case management system Store your data in the cloud, access it from anywhere, manage your practice, and enjoy your life. You can find a free 15-day trial online at www.primafashinow.com. If you can't remember those words or that address, just Google Clio and Immigration. Now back to our show. Okay, I'm good, James. All right, so we're back again. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is Attorney James Betzold with Immigration Light. I'm today joined by Attorney Joshua Micro. Uh He's an immigration attorney in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He specializes in removal defense and family petitions, uh, and he's just an excellent immigration attorney. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the morality or a little bit about the, the background of some of the immigration laws of the United States. Um, and I think we reached the conclusion that ultimately we're, the U.S. is still doing something right, even though some of the flaws in our immigration policy over the years. I think we've matured as a country um, you know, to be less and less uh, discriminatory. And I think the conclusion is we still have probably a little way to go, but that we're doing something right and you know, people still really want to come here. So going back to the original question that we had at the beginning of the show from this gentleman at church who had asked me, you know, how do we square – you know. Uh, representing people in immigration when they've broken the law, clearly. Um, we've analyzed sort of the history of some of the laws of the United States to examine the underlying premise. And now I actually want to go back further. I want to start at, uh, at, at least according to the Holy Bible, uh, the beginning of time uh, or the beginning of the earth and just sort of examine what were some of the ways that, that people or God has dealt with, with immigrants or that people have dealt with immigrants in the past. And... So I think for me, if we start, I mean, if we just go back to Genesis and the whole account of the creation, you know, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he creates man. And Josh, what does he do with man? What does he give him power over? Uh, he gives him dominion over, I, I think if I remember right, really everything, like the, the, the to um, cultivate the earth, to cultivate crops and to name the animals and uh, to, uh, that, that he, would be, he would have dominion over everything. Am I, right. Is that where you're going so, with that? That's exactly it. God gives man dominion over the whole earth and everything in it. And, you know, I, it's made for man's enjoyment. Now, so at that point, I would say there's there's really no immigration laws. There's really only two people on the earth at the time, Adam, Eve. So, you know, fairly straightforward. They can go anywhere. Let's fast forward uh, to honestly one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And it's a story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph in Egypt. No, yeah. actually, we can't jump there yet. 
Let's go first to, because, uh, let's see. Joseph's father was Jacob, who's also called Israel, had 12 sons. Jacob's father was Abraham. Right. Yeah, actually, Abraham. no, no. Okay, Jacob, so, Jacob's father was Isaac, and Isaac's father was Abraham. That's right. Okay, so let's say, I mean, if we look at the story even of Abraham, Abraham leaves the land of... Ur, right? You uh, are. <laughs> yes, yes. He was born in the land of Ur. Uh, Ur? You are? Or is it U-Z? You are? Uh, I don't remember. Oh, my I, goodness. I, I remember it being... I'm going to have to edit this part out. It's a two-letter word. Uh, let's see. Uh, Noah. Abraham. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we're we're terrible. We should know this, James. My sem <laughs> my seminary teachers would be they're probably rolling over at this. I think it's what you know what Google's faster than me flipping through the Bible. Huh? Yeah, I'm I'm go uh, yep, I got it's over. I was right. Land of Ur. Okay, good. All right. So that's good. So he was in the land of Ur. God tells him, I I got a mission for you. You gotta go this way. And uh, leads him to the land of Canaan. Now, at the time do you think that Abraham uh, requested a travel permit, visa, <laughs> or any such thing? Yeah, no. I'm, I'm sure, sure he didn't. I, I, bet he, I think he right? didn't. I think he went to the Babylonian uh, 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 consulate and, uh, and said, you know, I know I, I'm, I'm going to renounce my Babylonian citizenship and I'm, I'm going to head over to Canaan. I, I'm sure that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even as he's – I mean, even in his travels – he passes through a number of different lands, and he sort of foils the plot of a, one of the kings there who he thinks is going to covet his wife and try and kill him. Um, so clearly did not have legal authorization to be entering the land, didn't, didn't get official permission to do so. <laughs> but ends up in the land of Canaan, which God gave to him for an inheritance, right, for him and all of his children. Um, right. So let's fast forward through Isaac. Yeah. Fast forward through Isaac. Fast forward to Jacob, right? So – from from the amazing from Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, we know that Jacob lived in the land of Canaan not long after the Bible began. Right. right. First this book. This is consequently one of the. Uh, it's probably the favorite YouTube video in our household. My three-year-old, my two-year-old, my eleven-year-old love it. The story <laughs> of jo Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So, I can quote that word for word. <clears throat> I, I, maybe I need to get that. In front of my daughter, maybe she's like it. <laughs> well, careful with uh, with some of the dancing scenes there, but yeah. <laughs> um, so, anyways, we've got uh, we've got Jacob, right? And and Jacob's given the land, and he's in Canaan, and he's got twelve sons, and a bunch of these sons sell Jacob's favorite son into Egypt, right? Right, right. Well, it's so always Joseph Egypt, is isn't it? Forward. Egypt's like always the foil. It's there's always this. Uh, even Jesus is, it comes on the scene. He uh, when early on, he lives like the first fifteen years of his life or something in Egypt. Oh, we're gonna get to that because uh, once again, do you think he had a tourist visa? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. So, so, uh, so Joseph is in the land of Canaan. He gets brought into Egypt as a slave, right? And uh, after interpreting Pharaoh's dream and really, you know, fulfilling God's will and uh, helping Egypt survive. Uh, some very some very nasty circumstances with famine. Um, he's actually elevated to the position of second in command, essentially, right? Yeah, I, I don't know what the specific Pharaoh position was, but I think he was he was basically the number two. 
Yeah, and I don't think they gave him an official title, uh, or, or it's given here, but let's call him the Grand Wazir, or <laughs> the, Jafar. the Vice President the of Jafar Egypt. Of the Jafar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, do you think in Pharaoh's court, you had anyone who was in there saying, you know, Pharaoh, you're, you're Ra, you're God on Earth, um, but you know what? You're appointing this guy, and he's a foreigner. Yeah. I mean, he's he's an immigrant, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, they may have been thinking that. I mean, far from what we know, but. Um, well, I mean, I think that, if I remember the story, Jake, or Joseph starts out pretty low. Um, I think he starts out, if I'm not mistaken, he's in jail, isn't he? Um, at one point in Egypt. Am I, am I? Oh, a slave. No, he's a slave. He's accused of, uh, of raping uh, Potiphar's wife, which, of course, is a fallacy. And so he's imprisoned instead of killed. Uh, and then, yeah, interprets dreams of the butcher and the baker. Not the butcher and the baker, the uh, the baker and the, like, the cup bearer. Yeah. The butler, I guess. Yeah, the, and, and I mean, well, the, yeah, the point being that he, he uh, it, it, I mean, and again, you see this, well, I'll let you finish where you're going with this, but yeah, he absolutely was. And then from there, of course, um, you have the story of, of Moses, uh, you know, again, being a Hebrew amongst the, again, the Egyptians, and and you have the whole story. Right, because of, and Joseph's family comes in at the, you know at the at the end of the show, right? Joseph's family moves into Egypt. Um, they establish themselves there. Four hundred years go by, and you've got, according to the biblical account, millions of of Hebrews living in Egypt, right. living as strangers, and by that time, no longer as friends, but as you know, a form of uh, slavery, form of slavery as well. Right. So, so when when they say, you know what, we're out of here. Um, you have Moses who comes along. God calls Moses to be a prophet to free his people. Uh, and he actually appeals to to the legal sovereign of the time and isn't asking for permission to come in, but permission to leave. Yeah. And, of course, he's refused a few times, and Egypt suffers some plagues. Um, but you've got a huge movement of people then that at, at first are given permission to leave, and then, of course, Pharaoh pursues them and is destroyed. His armies are destroyed. But... You've got a group of people who they just need to get the heck out of Egypt and get back. Uh, well, they need to go. Yeah, they need to go Canada. somewhere safer, right? I mean, I mean, in, in effect, right. I mean, they had been there for hundreds of years. So even though they were a, uh, you know, a different nationality or a different race or whatever you want to, you would want to say if you were the Egyptians, they, 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 they needed a place as so many immigrants do today. They needed a place to go where they'd be safe. And so there's this. I mean, right there at the core of the biblical story uh you have this story of of the exodus of the movement from one place to the promised land um you know and ronald reagan even as in, in the 1980s used language that uh, is related to this to the exodus to talk about how america is the shining city on the hill the, the modern promised land and that we still need to uh, observe that in our in our politics and um it's uh, I, I mean, I think for me, like the the if you look at the whole sweep of the of the of the biblical narrative, and again, obviously we understand that that not everybody believes this stuff actually happened. You know, given your faith and mine, we we, we do uh, believe that that these are representations of ancient history um, that are that are encoded in the in the in the scriptures. But like the whole sweep of it, I, I mean, when I. When, before we did this podcast, I got on uh, the internet just to look and see how many different verses of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, 
deal with issues re related to immigration. And it, you find it in and out of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's everywhere. Like um, it says here in Leviticus 19, 33 and 34, uh, when the alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be as uh, to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So just in case it wasn't clear, the person giving the orders <laughs> is, is, oh, yeah. is God himself. Um, and then you get into, uh, let's see here, Numbers 914. You shall have one statute, one statute for both the resident alien and the native. Um, and then you get into uh, uh, Numbers 35. And, and again, in Joshua, the Lord instructs Moses to give cities of refuge to the Levites so that when the Israelites have to flee into Canaan, they can have cities of refuge given to them. So in other words, you never know when you're going to need to go somewhere else. So uh, in the biblical idea, in the law, I mean, the Torah is referred to by, um, I think, basically every uh, Judaic, uh, every version of Judaism today. I don't want to speak with, with, with too much ignorance here, but the Torah is looked at as the, as the law in every sect of Judaism today. Um, it's in and out. It's everywhere about um, protect the alien allow those who are fleeing from situations like the one that you had to leave in Egypt. Um, and so, you know, for many people, obviously these stories function as the basis for what is moral, like talking about like what's first. Uh, I would agree. I think everyone would agree that the law itself is not the end, the end determiner uh, in any society, in American society or a British society or South African society or Russian or Chinese or anywhere else. Um, that the right. law as it's written in current text is not, I don't think anyone would ever have the gall to say it represents the perfect law. Unless I mean, most people still identify as, as believing in a higher power. Most people still identify as believing in the, the Christian Bible um, or the old Testament and the new Testament that we, that we look at as the Bible. Um, and so this is an, it's, it's an interesting discussion. I think a fascinating and important discussion to get into just, just to give everyone out there some context not that uh, the context maybe is obvious, but we're, we're getting into this because we want to discuss, like, what does it really mean to be welcoming of immigrants? Like, what, what really should orient our principles towards immigration? And I think for you and I— And I think some, yeah. some important things in the, in the discussion today is, I mean, if we look at what's going on in the world right now, um, what should our attitude towards immigrants be? You know, and assuming—I mean— I mean, I'm coming from the Christian perspective as well. But if we look at what's happening in Syria, for example, since 2011, 5.1 million, 5.1 million Syrians potentially, and I'm not familiar with the exact numbers of the Bible right now about the number of Hebrews who left Egypt, but I think this is more. I think more Syrians have fled Syria than Hebrews fled Egypt because of what's going on there and because of the civil war and because of the death and the displacement and the war. I mean, it's just a huge thing. And so how relevant today is, is the reminders from the ancient Hebrews, from the Jews, uh, from the Torah, from the Old Testament, saying, hey, when you've got people who are, who are sojourning in your country with you, you need, to, you need to treat them well. You need to welcome them. You need to love them. You give them food, clothing. You give them shelter. You give them asylum. You give them... You give them everything that they need. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's only the number that have actually fled Syria. There's there's 6.3 million who are displaced within their own country. Um, yeah. Um, 
Absolutely. I, I mean, th- this is, you know, where I, I take inspiration from um, these, these old texts. And, and as you say, again and again and again and again, um, it's, it's like provide food. Um, don't, uh, don't spit on them, you know, uh, take care of them, treat them as this, the same as, as a native citizen, treat them, uh, you know, put things aside for the widow, the orphan and the alien. Um, it's, I, I and, and that's such an interesting point about Syria. Um, the Syrian crisis has been described as the greatest um, movement of, of, of refugees since World War II, when refugees were spilling out of Europe into North Africa, going the opposite way, uh, trying to flee the, um, the Nazi invasion of France. And, uh, and, that, and that's amazing to think about. We've seen these pictures today of, of the, um, I think the, the, one, the famous one of the, the, the dead young uh, Syrian, um, I think it was, if it wasn't a baby, it was a toddler um, on the shores of the Mediterranean. And, uh, and everyone, I think, around the world, I, I think, saw that and thought, this isn't right. Um, and you've heard, I think, a lot of the language that we're citing right now, uh, Angela Merkel in particular in Germany has uh, cited a lot of these, these same um, ideas as the reason why Germany is being so generous right now to Syrian refugees in particular. Um, and, uh, well, I think I think right now, um, I mean, we're at about an hour here, so I think we need to wrap it up for today. But the discussion isn't over. I think we've we've barely scratched the surface. I think we've covered some of the authority in the Old Testament for how we should think of immigrants and how we should treat them, especially when they're fleeing, you know, persecution. Um, but we haven't even touched the New Testament, and I think there's some really great examples there as well. Um, I want to thank Josh Mikru for being with us today, um, and hopefully we can. We can schedule another block of 45 minutes or so just to get into to some of the rest of this. But I'm actually getting the signal from my assistant here saying I've got to go. I've got some things uh, going on here. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been getting the same. Um, so, so um, yeah, I love this subject. I, I mean, I think both of us feel really strongly about it. So there probably is more to say. Hopefully we can get into it in the next uh, the next podcast. Yeah, I think so, too. All right. So uh, thank you for joining us today. And, uh, you know, this is Immigration Light. We want to shine the light on the topic of immigration, provide you with real information, real facts, what the law really is um, to make the world a better place. Amen. Our show today is brought to you by Prima Fasci. Prima Fasci is the immigration attorney's solution for the autofilling of forms and immigration case management. Prima Fasci is a standalone application. It is cloud-based and it is built to also sync your data with Clio. Clio is the world's leading practice management software. It's completely cloud-based and lets you save hours and hours and hours of time per week so you can focus on what's important to you. Find a free trial for Prima Fasci at www.primafascinow.com. Scroll down and click the link to begin your free 15-day trial. No credit card is required. Give it a try and we're sure you'll enjoy it. Because Prima Fasci is the easiest to use and most intuitive immigration form software out there. We've also recently added a number of other features, including our client portal, where your client can log in and securely upload documents to their case. They can also review their checklist, review the case flow, and even review the forms that you've prepared for them, so that when they come into the office, they're ready to sign. Prima Fasci, immigration forms made easy. Thank you for listening to the show today. We hope you enjoyed what you heard. The opinions and views expressed on the show are, in fact, 
the views and opinions of the people who said them. If you enjoyed what you heard, please give us a positive review, share it on social media, share it with your immigration attorney friends, or with anybody who cares about the topic of immigration. Also, please stay tuned for part two of this delightful episode. Have a great day.